you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, and that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Here we are at another edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White here with my Howard brethren, my main man, Jim Trotter. Jim, this weekend... We saw some even more atrocious offensive line play with a whole lot of team. I mean, it's interesting, Jim. Like, there's a lot of backups playing right now. And you can just see that now some of these defenses we were worried about, they see light at the end of the tunnel to get to the quarterback. Yeah, it's tough, you know, and you know this as well as anyone, Steve, having played the game and even, in, I think you said in high school, play quarterback. Um, if one player on the offensive line is off, the entire line play is off and that's what makes it so difficult. So whether, you know, you may think, well, one guy goes out, I'll compensate, put someone else in and you can continue to flow. Um, no unit requires cohesion as much as an offensive line. So no question when we start seeing guys going in and out of the lineup, it's going to affect play. Yep. We're going to talk about the Ravens big loss. And we're not talking about the loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers talking about offensive line. Um, also injuries to the 49ers. My goodness. You talk about buzzards luck. They could be in trouble. But Jim, what's really cool um, on today's show is we're going to have someone we've known for a while, and that's former Falcons general manager Thomas Dimitrov. And just fired three, four weeks ago. Team is winning. Him and Dan Quinn are gone. The team is winning. Um but we know TD, you know, we, we had John Lynch and we talked about his honesty. We get Thomas Dimitrov. He's a really different guy. Like he's just a, such a breath of fresh air and just um, so outside of the box. So really looking forward to that conversation. You know, I always joke with Thomas sometimes about his vocabulary. I'm like, uh, your vocabulary is not that of a general manager. It is that of a professor. So yes. <laughs> I throw it on him sometimes. He'll hit me with some words. I'm like, come on, man. You know, I'm just a sports writer. Don't do that. But let's really get started here, and let's trade deadline Tuesday. We've seen some moves past couple of days. You know, we're, we're seeing uh, Quan Alexander get traded to the Saints. 
for Kiko Alonso, this is kind of an even trade because because I think I mean Kiko really fits what the Niners do. Quan really fits what the Saints do. Just couldn't stay healthy. Had a big salary, so the Saints are trying to dump a little bit of cash. You know, I we keep all we always talk every year about trades happening right up into the deadline with COVID. There's like a five day transition period and whatnot. But Jim, I do think there are some teams that um, need to be in the buying business, and some teams need to be in the selling business. And something that just intrigues me. I don't think it's going to happen. But you and I both know the Chargers. Melvin Ingram, right? He just saw Joey Bosa get this big contract. He wanted his deal guaranteed this year because he knows he's probably gone after the season. I'm like, if you're the Arizona Cardinals or or the Seattle Seahawks, a team that could really use a guy who can win like Melvin, and he hasn't won much this year, but we know what he's capable of. Um, why not make a move for him? Because you think the Chargers would, you know, they're not going to hold you hostage for a third third round pick for him, knowing that he's he's probably this is going to be it for him after the season. Do you have any thoughts about that or some other teams that you think should be in the buying or selling market? You know, Steve. You, we sometimes become prisoners of the moment where we say in the NFL, your window is only open for a short period of time. And so you have to take advantage of it. And we've seen teams do that and it backfires on them. And that if they don't get the end result that they desire, um, it impacts them a year down the road, two years down the road, if not longer. So I understand what you're saying, and I agree for a club like Arizona to be able to go out and find an edge rusher to try and replace um, Chandler Jones. Not that you ever replace a Chandler Jones, but you find ways to generate pressure. They went back and got Marcus Golden, who they had had before. Right, who was having could. a good year for the Giants. Correct. So I think maybe they think that he can come on and give them some of that. Um, so I think it all depends on what the cost is, because typically when you make these deals, too, Sometimes you're looking at it as a one-year rental, a half-season rental, mm -hmm. because that player typically is going to want more money at some point. And do you want to pay that player, particularly if he is a veteran guy? So um, I'm interested to put that question to Thomas Dimitrov about, you know, what will we see at a trade deadline and why in the NFL don't we see more trades like we see in the NFL? But I think you said one thing that was key here. This does remind me to some extent of the NBA in terms of teams trying to dump future salaries, because as you know, next year, because of COVID, the salary cap is going to go down pretty dramatically. And there are teams that had not budgeted for that in terms of their payroll and whatnot. In fact, you know, as you know, clubs were budgeting for the salary cap going up. Mm -hmm. And so they've got to get ready for that. The good teams have to get ready for that. And I think we're going to see some teams try and do that. That's what the 49ers did with Quan Alexander. Hey, Jim, speaking of the 49ers, I mean, we saw them take a step forward. Then we saw them come just get cleaned out by the Seahawks this week. And now Jimmy Garoppolo going to be out for at least a month as he re-aggravated that high ankle sprain. George Kittle is going to be out for at least a month. Our Ian Rappaport NFL Network was saying that he could be with his foot fracture. Could be longer, maybe even for the rest of the season, depending on how things go. Are they out of contention? I mean, you you see, you know this division. They really haven't gotten to the guts of playing their, their division schedule yet. Is this kind of the death knell? They should start prepping for 2021. Yeah, Steve, you never want to say never, particularly with a team as prideful as the 49ers. But the reality is it just seems like this is just, you know, too much to overcome. And the one thing I believe with them is they are not going to take chances with a guy like Kittle. So if that foot is not right, they're not going to rush him back. Um with Garoppolo, 
We're talking about at least a month. Um, there, he's not, so, so you're going to have to rely on Mullen or Beathard. And we've seen already that the 49ers have had issues with both at times. And, and I'm not going to say a lack of confidence, but there has been a lack of production. So from my standpoint, I do believe that there has simply been too many injuries for San Francisco this year. Yeah, it's, it's going to be real interesting to see what that opens up because the NFC East is only going to have one playoff team. So there's going to be six playoff spots available. Um, so let's say the Saints and Buccaneers from the south. Um, right now, Arizona and Seattle. The north, you've got Green Bay and the Bears, even though I think the Bears are trending negatively to see if maybe a team like Carolina can slip in there, Jim. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this plays out Let's throw a dark horse team out there from the NFC. You talk about making the playoffs. I find it interesting, and I'm glad we're having Thomas Dimitrov on, that the Falcons could be 3-0. and How if about not that? For Todd, if not for Todd Gurley's brain fart at the end of that game, they could be 3-0 and right now since that change, the coaching change. So is this just an aberration, or will this continue going forward? And if it continues going forward, again, with there being – an additional playoff team this year. Maybe that's a dark horse team to come in and slip in and get that seventh spot. You know, I was on them before the season, Jim. You were. You, know, you very much were. were. Team. So hopefully, you know, they can at least make me look good. So, yeah, and, you know, and I want to, and, and I would love to talk to him about that because you and I both know it is not like the Falcons are bereft of talent. No. There is talent on that team, and there has been talent there since Thomas Dimitrov came. I covered that team when they hired Thomas Dimitrov. And, you know, look, they tried to go out and hire Bill Parcells. It was They thought it was done. Parcells was going to be the coach and kind of president. Jeff Ireland was going to be the GM. He leveraged that for both of them in the jobs with the Dolphins. Then the Falcons go out and they try and hire Pete Carroll. He's like, no thanks. You know, I'm not really down with going through the Confederate flags of uh, Flowery Branch when I've got the sunny beaches here of the West Coast and the West Coast lifestyle. So they end up with Thomas Dimitrov and Mike Smith, and it works. They, they had a fantastic partnership. So, again, to see a guy who put talent there, but then they weren't necessarily coached to win, where does an owner like Arthur Blank draw the line? Well, you know, Jim, since we're, since we're there, um, let's go ahead and bring Thomas in to discuss it. Here's our conversation with former Falcons GM Thomas Dimitrov. Hey, this is Doug Williams, and you're listening to the Huddle and Flow podcast. All right, JT, now we're bringing in uh, someone we know, you know, we've known for a while, really cool uh, guys, always treated us well, love our conversations on and off the record. And that's uh, former Falcons general manager, Thomas Dimitrov. TD, uh, welcome into the Huddle and Flow podcast. On and off the record, I appreciate that lead-in. No, you guys are good friends, <laughs> and I appreciate being able to do this. We've had, we've had a lot of good times over the years, and former is a little odd to be uh, rolling yeah. off my lips. Speaking of that, Thomas, I mean, look, you've been involved with football your entire adult life at this time of year. This is the first time you haven't been. What's that like for you, and, and how strange is it? It's it's odd. I mean, obviously, there are pockets of time that I value, and there are other times when I'm yearning to be back in the middle of it all. I mean, thinking about being on the field during the week, uh, weekends, whatever it may be, interacting with all the people that I have a great deal of regard for with the Falcons. We've built a very good team. And I'm not just talking about the players. There's some great people there. You know, some of them, very talented up and coming executives and and coaches on that staff. 
So I want to, you know, I wish them all well, and I miss my interaction with them regularly. In the end, pockets of euphoria. I've mentioned this before in different uh, publications or, or talks. And those hints of, you know, the, the 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 low times where you're you're yearning for something. But look, I can be with my family more now. I can get back to the mind, body, soul element, which is really important for me. Um, and and take some time to really dig into some areas of study that I want to dig into and get ready for next opportunities in my life. Thomas, you, you guys always know that, that your job is on the line at any point um, in the NFL, as you know, it's a not for long business. But just knowing that and knowing that the Falcons have started slowly and whatnot, when you get called into the owner's office, um, what's the word you use? I mean, is it surreal to when that moment arrives and he's going to make a change? Yeah, surreal is probably a good word. I think people have asked, was I surprised? I was surprised at the timing. And, you know, it's not, again, it's not completely unfounded or, or unprecedented that someone, a general manager, is fired at the same time a head coach is in the first quarter of the season. That said, it's not common. So, you know, I think looking at it all and wondering how it all went down and wondering, you know, we didn't win. We weren't winning. And ultimately, you know, Arthur Blank is a – obviously a, an excellent businessman and a and very highly regarded owner in this league. And he's going to make decisions that are in the best interest of, you know, him, the organization, and ultimately the fan base who he is ultimately loyal to and, and, uh, and appropriate appropriately. So for him. Thomas, here's, here's kind of the, I don't know if double edge is, is to it, but over the years since you've been there, I mean, you have stacked this roster with talent. I mean, you look at the Falcons now, it is loaded with talent. So was it just a matter of wins and losses? Because oftentimes general managers are graded on the personnel that they add. And the personnel is there. So was it just a matter of wins and losses? I think in the end, uh, you know, we I'm, I'm very proud of my time in, in Atlanta. Those the years, the seven years with Mike Smith developed a really good relationship with Mike. And, uh, you know, humbly, we built, I think, a solid football team during that time. Came up a little bit short then. You know, 16, we came up short. Dan and I, I love our relationship, the way that we interacted together. We built a team, unfortunately, past 16 and then 17 in the playoffs when we got deep in, past that. I have always used that symphonic uh, analogy where there's some really talented musicians slash players in the symphony. And for some reason, one time, uh, one game, a group would be playing really well here, but over here, they're not playing as well. Another one here playing really well, another plays subpar why that team and why that symphony was not coming together um, is a question that we continue to dig on myself and Dan. Dan and I have a really good relationship now. We'll debrief here very soon about what we think, you know, went awry and we worked a lot on it. It wasn't like it was, we were flipping about it. We were really trying to gauge and in my mind, one of the best teams that we had this year purely, you know, I think we were ready to go and it was just very surprising that we started off zero and five. And uh, then, obviously, it does come down to wins. You know, to, to back up Steve's point here, Thomas, when you look at your record, you were there 12-plus years. They had never had back-to-back -back winning seasons prior to your arrival. You guys had winning seasons each of your first five years. You guys went to five playoffs. Um, I'm sorry, six playoffs. Um, and NFC, two NFC championship games, one Super Bowl. And the thing that I find interesting now, again, as Steve said about stocking the roster, 
This team is now only one brain fart by Todd Gurley from being 3-0 and under Raheem Morris. So clearly the players are there to win. And that's what I find interesting in this situation from an ownership standpoint. That speaks to the talent level of the personnel. And I would think also speaks to maybe the coaching wasn't getting it done. Um, was there any conversation between you and Arthur about differentiate, differentiating between those two things, meaning the talent level and what was being coached? Well, I'll say first, um, I'm sure somewhere along the line, you guys are going to be having Arthur on your podcast. So you could have him expound on. I don't want to answer for Mr. Blank, of course. Um, differentiating between a general manager and a head coach is, is not always easy. And, and in the end, from way back when Dan was hired back in, you know, uh, in 15, when we started off our, our journey together, um, it was it was widely reported and, and, and uh, discussed that we were side by side as partners, which I believe you have to be partners. You have to be partners anytime. I look at the history of the NFL. And when I was first looking at becoming a general manager, back when you looked at Marty Schottenheimer and A.J. Smith, two really good football men who you thought would be winning championship after championship, but they didn't for some reason. Uh, I'm not speaking like I know intimately, but I looked at that and I thought I always wanted that incredible relationship with the head coach. I think I had it with Mike Smith. We had a really good relationship for the most part and grew and grew and, and, and uh, were together for quite a long time and, and learned together. And then, you know, with, with Dan Quinn, Dan's one of his biggest goals was to have the best relationship with the general manager in sport. And so I loved knowing that we had that because that was the only way we thought it was going to happen. So in the end, the feeling that we were together on everything we did, uh, wins, losses, uh, being terminated, I, I guess in the very end, it, it played out the way that it was supposed to play out. Tini, what do you what do you think happened? I mean, people look back to the, the loss of the Patriots in the Super Bowl and the 28-3 and everything. We know you got to the playoffs the next year, but it still didn't seem like the same team. What, what do you think happened from that point on? That's a, that's a really tough question, Steve. I mean, again, we, we had a lot of those players back, and we have, we've had a lot of those players around during the stretch since 16, as you guys know. I mean, we have, we have they have, one of the older, uh, older rosters as far as a lot of talent that has some age on them, not, not age like you and I, guys, talking <laughs> right. about 26.5 to 27.1. Very different, right? But – you know, there's there's some age on the roster and there should be maturity and there should be consistency and there should be, um, you know, the, the regular accountability of any any championship style uh, organization. And, and um, for some reason, we were continuing to work on that all the time. And that was very important for us to make sure. And, and I look at that and I continue to dig in wondering what we could have done differently. So one of the reasons that I want to meet with Dan and I really want us to be incredibly honest with each other, which I believe we are and talk about what we could have done differently as, you know, co-team builders, not only the building of the team, but how the team was run, how the organization was set up, football ops related, of course, and what we would have done differently and how we would have hired differently within that group. I'm talking about not only the players, of course, but I'm talking about the staffs. Would we have done anything different? That, that's, that's a lot of contemplation because you all know how important it is. It's very important to make sure that you have – all the staffs together. So on the coaching side, to make sure that your coordinators are in sync with uh, the rest of the position groupings and their position coaches, as well 
the scheme is uh, synonymous with what Dan wanted as a head coach and what we wanted as an organization. One of the things I would say to anyone, any young general manager coming in or a young general manager and head coach or anyone is the importance of making sure that you are putting together as, as, as good of a assistant coaching staff as possible. I think we have some really good, again, they have some really good assistant coaches on the staff and it's really important to make sure that you have as many as possible. And that's very, very important for a team to win. The assistant coaches are very, very important for the responsibility of holding players accountable. Um, and that starts from the coordinators down through the position groups. And, and I realized that after 13 years in this league, uh, again, there are some very talented coaches out there, but it's really important to make sure you put the group together um, and they all work together well and communicate well together. I assume you've watched the Falcons since you were let go, correct? I have. And again, they're, they're, they're one brain fart from being 3-0. and And I wonder, what have you seen as to why they're now winning versus why they started 0-5? Is there something you can put your finger on? No. I, look, I'm, I'm a big believer in offensively. You know, I think Matt Ryan has the, the abilities to be a championship-caliber quarterback. I think he is, a, he is an upper-echelon quarterback. I've said this as well, Matt Ryan, along with the fact that you would have, you know, um, the appropriate and creative play calling situation and the appropriate um, personnel groupings in. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the Matt Ryan's ability to take it to the next level is, is I think, very, very strong. On, de- on the defensive side, as you watch these games, as I've watched some of the offense becoming more and more creative and moving the ball around, that's really important on the defensive side. Um, I think it's really important to get creative there as well. I mean, you've, you've watched, you know, Raheem, this past game, watching, watching the defense blitz. I mean, they're, they're blitzing linebackers, they're blitzing corners. Uh, understand that opens up some opportunities for offenses to, to, to navigate and throw the ball down the field. You have to pressure the quarterbacks in this league. We all know how important that is. It was fun to watch some of those players be the athletes that they can be. Um, not saying there was uh, a whole bunch of a difference before, but I think it's really important to, steer, to stay um, on, on uh, track that way and continue. You know, it's interesting to me, Thomas. Um, one of the things I appreciated most about you in your position is that you thought outside of the box and you weren't your stereotypical old school general manager. Um, and when you came in, some people looked at you differently because of that. This young guy, the bike rider, you know, the nutrition, um, the cool threads, all of that. I wonder at what point did you feel, if, if you ever felt that in some ways you were viewed as an outsider, if you will, and at what point you felt finally accepted and comfortable within the league? It's a great point. I look back on some of those early articles that that were, you know, reported on, or, you know. Uh, was was I right, TD? Was I huh? right, them? You might have been writing them. Charles Robinson and guys like that. Yeah, no, I remember some of them. And I remember I knew that there were going to be a lot of uh, of darts thrown just because it's the nature of anyone. There's for many, many reasons. Here is here's what I don't know if many people know. From the day I was born, literally coming into this world, I was born into a football family. My dad coached football all my life. I've been around football all my life. I wanted nothing more than to be the most badass defensive coordinator in the NFL all of my life, believe it or not. There's where the irony is, right? I feel like we put so much time and focus on that offense. And, you know, we've had two, we had two um, really adept defensive coordinators as head coaches, and we never came away with, 
with that stellar defense that we wanted. That's another topic. My point is I've been around football all my life. I've been around a lot of these guys, whether I was growing up in the college scene when my dad was coaching or whether I was on the sideline, you know, flipping cords, uh, flipping jobs, jock straps. I did every job literally in football as I was growing up. I get to this opportunity here. And yeah, there were a lot of people that say, wow, you were nothing like your dad. My dad was an old school, tough ass, hardcore, hard nosed football man from Miami of Ohio. That's what he was. That's where he went to school. That's where he coached in the cradle of the coaches. I was raised that way. I was raised to be about team. I was not raised to be about individuality. And it was about the team. And I, and I feel so damn strong about how it is that we all come together and that's the best way to win. So when I started moving through this, those early years, I knew people were going to throw darts, the ones that didn't know me. But I knew as time came on and people realized as I started interacting with a lot of my contemporaries and coaches along the way that I realized that it wasn't just the visual. OK, maybe my hair's a little bit different, although it's not blue hair like Rich McKay had suggested <laughs> when I was first in Boulder, Colorado, interviewing way back in 2008. But there are differences. I get it. This league, I love how we're evolving in the league in so many ways. Sure, we have a lot of growing to do. Very proud that we're evolving and we've become that much more uh, rounded um, as leaders and, and uh, for those to, that, that want to approach this in an in upstanding way and continue to grow and get better and better. Hey, Jim, if I, can, if I can tell a little story here, because you know I covered the team uh, when Thomas was hired. And Thomas was, and this is funny how it kind of connects today, TD. Everything's by Zoom. Everything is virtual. Thomas was the first general manager candidate, maybe in the NFL, to do his job interview virtually. Remember that? That was a big deal. Like Arthur Blank interviewed this guy who has never even been a GM or an assistant GM before virtually, and they hired him. What is going on? Is this some new space age stuff? So then TD gets hired. And the one thing he made sure to tell me, like when some of our first interactions is, you know, I know I come from the Patriots, but I don't really necessarily believe in some of the Patriot ways where we've got to keep things kind of on the Death Star. You know, I think communication in a lot of different ways is is healthy. And, and it really worked, I think, with, with Thomas's relationships with the media and other people. But one thing I want to kind of build that onto, Thomas, is just from that kind of different approach from your, again, your health and wellness with your strength and fitness. I remember you changed the whole strength and fitness program with the Falcons. Cause some of the things that you wanted to, to adhere to, what about some of that new age thinking in the early stages of, of your tenure of being a general manager and how now that is so much of the norm in the NFL. Remember gentlemen, that group, there was a group of seven to eight to 10 GMs that, that, Arthur and his group were interviewing during that time. I was probably 13th on the list. One of the things I'm the most proud of when I talk to people and they're like, wow, you know, I wasn't first choice here. And people get all up and down over that and miffed over that. I'm thinking you weren't first choice. I was probably 13th. And I carry that as a badge of, uh, as a badge of honor because I got up, I was working for the Patriots at that time. And I felt like I took a big swing for the fence and I'm using a baseball analogy. And I truly, I truly felt like, Look, I, I had learned so much from, from Bill Belichick and Scott Pioli and that whole group at New England, though we are very different in, in a lot of ways. I was going to come with some of that that was very important to apply from, from the Patriot paradigm, and then I was going to bring my own personality in. And a lot of that had to do with that area of differentiating our organization from others on athletic performance and where we were going with. We were one of the very first to 
um, to actually approach this whole idea using polar heart rate monitors and, and the tracking. And I remember way back then we were tracking very early and this was before things really hit in the league. And uh, without getting a ton of detail, let's just say I was, I was uh, taken to the, to the shed a little bit on that being ahead of it to be discussed, like where are you with tracking? And we weren't tracking in games, but the league wanted to make sure that we weren't tracking in games because that was really important. We were only tracking in practice. This is when, when straps weren't on everyone in the league. And that was a really important point in my career because I really wanted to continue to show how we could continue to track our players to maximize their performance at a time when that really wasn't happening a whole bunch. And a lot of people fell into place, of, of course. There's so much going on right now, and it's so advanced with the player tracking, not just not just from a league standpoint, but within each organization where people are and how they're tracking their players to help them, you know, uh, to help them maximize their abilities. So that was an area which didn't even start to talk about where we were going with analytics, which is a whole other area that I'm, you know, wildly uh, interested in and proud of, you know, where the Falcons are right now and where a lot of other teams are. I'm not saying that we started that. I'm just saying jumping on board and another suggestion I would suggest to any of the up-and-coming GMs and head coaches, being on the front end of the curve. You don't have to be right at the front, but at the front portion of the curve, I think is, is paramount to make sure that you are doing things right. You're not just sitting back, you know, and, and waiting and being reactionary. I think you have to be proactive in this league. And Thomas, how difficult is that? Because what you hear, speaking truthfully from some GMs at times, is it's easier to go with the flow, and that way, if it doesn't work, you're not out on an island. How difficult is it to be outside the box and to think outside the box and to act outside the box in a league as as conservative and generally um, where there is a, a sort of a pack mentality? Well, look, I think you have to be very mindful of your audience slash your 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 ownership group and what your organization is if historically they have a conservative approach. Well, of course you have to be mindful. You know, I think that's important back to not for long. I am not a believer in sitting on my hands. There's no way. I mean, obviously we didn't do that uh, going after, you know, uh, Matt Ryan, the very first pick ever. We didn't do it with trading for Tony Gonzalez as we did, or even in 11, of course, when we moved up 21 spots to, to go after Julio Jones and along the way, a number of trades, et cetera, et cetera. I, I believe in being aggressive, not flippantly aggressive at all. It's well thought out. I, I've always said, again, humbly, that organization in Atlanta over the years um, with a number of really intelligent, thought out people, we rarely were off, were off the top of our minds just making decisions. I think that is so incredibly important. By make, being very thoughtful in your approach, I think you can apply the aggressiveness and, and the, the, the confidence to go after what you believe in to help make a championship organization. Of course, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you, you follow through, sometimes you come up short. But there is no way I could see anyone surviving in this league without having an element of aggressiveness. And I will say, I find that this young, younger group of GMs, which are now uh, obviously 10 plus years younger than I am, it's amazing. A lot of those guys, we have great relationships, but I mean, they're in a league right now where you know, two and three years in, if they're not making a massive move and they're not making and showing their ownership uh, that they are, they are winning now, they will not be along, uh, around long. And we all know that. So they need to make moves now. They need to, they need to be aggressive and not, again, not reactionary 
it's not always that easy to do because you, you know, you do something wrong. I look back on Julio Jones. If that would have truly went awry back then, I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now after, you know, 13 years with the Falcons. Thomas, that's a perfect segue into where we are right now. We've got the trade deadline coming up. Um, from your standpoint, can you take us behind the curtain about what the trade deadline means for an organization in the NFL and what is it like as it approaches? Personally, I've never been a huge fan of in-season trades. Of course, I am of trades in the draft. That's a whole different story. <laughs> I mean, I that. But in-season, um, that is a big, big deal. For us to think about trading for someone, to bring someone into an organization all those years in Atlanta, we usually knew that there were, there were things attached, stigma at time attached to certain players that might become in your organization. And if your organization was operating soundly and there was a good um, a team uh, camaraderie uh, mix and you're going to add someone outside from a completely different organization who is not used to how at this point Dan Quinn was coaching and how the organization was run, you run the risk of spending potentially a lot of money on someone or not and bringing them into an organization, uh, trading something away, potentially draft pick booty. And all of a sudden you're going to be in a spot where someone truly is not a fit. That is, that's a big, big deal. That is one thing you talk about injuries. You're not really sure of the, the, the legitimacy of, you know, the injuries you can trust a certain amount, but you really don't know what you're dealing with from an injury standpoint. And then on the other side, financially, if a guy's on the back end of his contract, you have no idea unless you do a trade, uh, you know, sign and trade. You have no, no idea how the next, you know, next few years are going to be and what you're going to be dealing with from a finance standpoint, which is, I, which is what I think segueing into this year. A lot of teams, I think, are very concerned about where the cap is going to be next year. Do they really want to get into a money situation that is precarious going into, into, this, into next season? So there's a lot of things, and at the very end, you hope by the middle of the season that you are as sound as possible. Again, that you've put together the right team, unless you've had an unfortunate injury or something go awry with a player. You start thinking about you know, whether you want to make that uneasy and un uncertain step into trading during the season. Let me take you to another trade scenario that Steve and I have talked about, Thomas, um, outside of the deadline. It would be this offseason. So if you are the Jets, who clearly are a dumpster fire this year, the only winless team in the league, it looks like they're going to have the number one pick in the draft. You have a young quarterback, franchise quarterback, that you drafted in the top five on your roster right now in Sam Darnold. Next year is going to be year four for him, which traditionally is when you start to, to talk extension with a player of that caliber if you're going to keep him. Knowing that Trevor Lawrence could be out there, um, and is considered a generational talented quarterback. Put on your GM hat for me. Do you look at that point then to say, we're rebuilding here. Let's go get this generational talent. Let's move Sam Darnold. Or do you put the known and try and build in another way? Well, th those are really, really complicated. It's a, it's a great conversation, I'm sure, over, over whatever it's over, uh, whether it's, <laughs> it's Coca-Cola or whatever it may be. I really believe like that's that's complicated. It really comes back to the overriding theme in my mind of what your organization is about. It makes sense to set yourself up to have the best draft pick 
you know, in the, in the draft and, and whatever trade away someone like in this scenario. But again, the messages that you're sending, I don't really know if that's, if that's what, if that was, is what needs to be sent to your organization and to your fan base. If you can get that generational talent quarterback in the first year of a rookie contract versus a talented young quarterback who's going into year four and is going to command an exorbitant salary, and you know your organization is years away from being at that level of competing for a championship, does it not make more sense to make that move to, to acquire draft capital to get that generational quarterback on year one of a contract versus staying the course? That makes sense, yes. In, uh, out of season, off season, it does make sense. I understand what you're saying. Yes, it does. Would you do it? <laughs> you got me. I mean, it makes sense, man. It makes sense. Would you do it? Um, I don't run that organization, so I. I <laughs> this is the first time I've seen you sweat, TD. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, Jim, he's not wearing that five a five thousand dollars suit. I'm not sweating Ooh. at all. I'm not sweating at all. <laughs> Look, um, yeah, it it would take a lot of good hard thinking, quite honestly. So let me let me do that. Like I said, we're a thought out organization. We were in the past. I want to continue to be that thought out person. I want to just give you a, a random answer right now. That's yeah, he fair. He would make that move because they're waiting for the next quarterback who's coming up from Clemson, who we saw fill in from Trevor Lawrence. That dude is a grown yeah. man. That dude's a hey, – hey, hey, TD, real, real quick before we do get you out of here, because Jim and I, you know, we talk a lot about diversity um, among coaches, but we really hit on personnel. And, look, I've seen a lot of people come up to your organization who are doing quite well, the Rand Carthon, Dewan Polk. Lionel Vital. Um, what about the pipeline of diverse talent and personnel that could be, you know, the next, the next guy, the next Thomas Dimitrov, or the next great, or the couple of next great general managers who've yet to have an opportunity? Is it there? Because a lot of people like to say, "Well, we don't really know who they are, this or that." And all we hear is like, "There's tons of people in that pipeline." Like you forgot to mention Anthony Robinson, who's a, who's right. a really a talented. Uh, college director for the Falcons, who I think should get all the opportunities in in next you know next while because he's a very smart football man and he's got leadership ability and he articulates well and he's been around this system a long time. Those are the people that I think probably many organizations have sort of tucked away and aren't really visible because of that position. As we all know, normally the college director, the the pro director, even the personnel director are 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 sort of side, side, uh, not sidebars, but kept aside because there are only few voices. I think as I've understood more and more, maybe the league is going to be able to have an opportunity to bring some of these guys who are, whether they're assistant general managers in time or personnel directors to make them more visible. So people know them more and they have more of an opportunity to interact on a lot of different levels, not just on the building of the football team, but understanding more about leadership. One of the things that's really important for most people and I've learned this over the years, having been in this 13 years, none of us were, were schooled and professionally trained to be leaders. Most of us came on this side, came from the personnel background, and we were out on the road, and we had our own many, many intelligent people on the road. Don't get me wrong, but you get inside of these, inside of these uh, walls of these scouting uh, uh, rooms, and you have your own scout speak. And then you put yourself into a boardroom and you're thinking, man, I can't articulate the way that I just have. I'd be throwing around expletives left, right and center. I would be kicked out of this place so fast. <laughs> Point is, 
more and more leadership, learning and growing within those roles and those middle management roles within the NFL are going to be vital for, for these guys, whether it's a diversity hire or whoever it is, to continue to learn, to grow, to be a leader. It's not just about picking players in the NFL anymore. Usually people, um, very good leaders, of course, like Arthur Blank, are expecting much more out of their leaders than just picking a tag off the board. So how do you prepare to become a leader, as you say? How, how do you, be, you, you you're yeah, what, what, so much, yeah, I think in my mind, you're so much more privy to the operation, you, you're including in a, included in a lot more meetings, whether those are finance meetings, whether they are um, many other departmental meetings that normally you might not be included in. I think it's really important so that you're not just sitting back there and when your time comes and you interview and you're a personnel director and you're thinking, I have no idea about all these other departments like athletic performance, like football technology to uh, cap and contracts to, um, you know, uh, player uh, development, player programs. There's so much more to learn. And I think if you're smart about it as an organization and you continue to school these gentlemen along the way as they're growing, they're going to be that much more prepared when their time comes. I wanted to ask just what's next for you? What do you right. want? Next, you know what? Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, I, the, the time being able to spend with my spend with my family, and uh, you know, getting my myself back where I need to be, studying a lot of different areas that I really want to study in over the next few months or however long it is. Um, you know, I am interested in in having an opportunity again if if the opportunity does come to be a co team builder on a football team. Um, I think that I would love to take another shot at building a championship caliber football team and. <laughs> That's that's on my mind, of course, but there are other opportunities and other areas in the business of sport that that seem to be coming my way as well. And I'm not sure if, if I'm ready to jump into that and get out of football. Maybe, um, you know, I don't know. All right, TD, you know, we, we really appreciate you. Normally, we do a bit at the end of the show where we talk about we had a guest on here talking about how they they eat chicken wings, which part the drumstick, the flat or that little pointy thing. But you're a vegan. So we can't go there with you. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was vegan for that many years. I now am, we'll call it plant-based and pescatarian kind of mixed up. This is what happens as you, you get over 50 and you start maturing, right? You're no longer as, as stout and rigid. You, you understand the importance of balance, right? Mind, body, and soul balance and, and making sure that I, that I understand what's best for me and how I feel. All right. So what, what, is, your, what is your go-to pesca? Go to Pesca, love blackened salmon with some really good organic steamed rice with the best salad that I make, which is really, really basic organic uh, romaine with a little bit of spinach in it with some balsamic and great organic olive oil with a little bit of agave, believe it or not, and uh, a little bit of veggies on the side. We sit there and we watch Anthony Bourdain like probably three or four episodes <laughs> in a row because I love uh, uh, you know, the travel, travel, just the greatest. Yeah. He is just the greatest. And, but, and Jim, TD and I, of course, are major wine guys. So the pairing is with that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I love, I love the, the French wine these days. I've been enjoying that. I love my California wine. Don't get me wrong. You guys are out there and you have some great places there, but I, a, uh, maybe a Mont Rocher with it. I like a really nice white, full white wine. Uh, that, that would probably hit the spot. Jim is thinking back to that Coca-Cola conversation you were talking about having since he doesn't indulge. 
No, T Thomas knows. For me, it's all about the lemonade, so it's all good. It's all about the lemonade. I get yeah. it. And we've we've had some good dinners together. I agree, one hundred percent. Absolutely, he can do the wine. I'll do the lemonade. Just as long as we both bring that conversation. I can say one thing before we get off about Thomas, man. The thing again, I really appreciate about him is that you could have frank discussions. You could think outside the box during those, and you could be honest and go back and forth. And sometimes that's hard to find in the NFL because folks don't like to be disagreed with or to hear an alternative thought. So TD, I always appreciated that about you. And, and uh, hopefully whatever it is you want next, you have that soon. Well, I appreciate it, gents. You guys, you guys will really appreciate your friendship over the years and two really intelligent guys. And I've, I've always appreciated that. I can sit down any day and spend time with you guys and learn. So thanks. All right, Thomas, really appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. See you guys soon. Steve, we told our listeners that Thomas Dimitrov was a different cat. And I think based on that conversation, uh, they now understand that. And my hope is that he gets back in sooner than later, because I think the NFL needs people, decision makers who are unafraid of being different and thinking outside the box and trying new things as opposed to relying on something just because that's the way it's always been done. So um so I'm glad Thomas came on. I'm glad our listeners got to, to hear from him. And one thing Thomas did well, again, I, I covered that team, so I, I know the organization well, is this is what he really brought from the Patriots, and that's kind of coaching up his staff to do what he wants, and then that staff getting recognized by others. Les Snead, now the Rams general manager, was on his staff. Ray Farmer, formerly the Cleveland Browns GM, was on his staff. David Caldwell, the current Jacksonville Jaguars GM, was on his staff. And you heard me mention people like Rand Carthon, um, Dewan Polk. Dewan is one of the top personnel guys with the Jags. Rand, of course, is with the 49ers. Billy Devaney, the former Rams general manager, was on the staff. So, I mean, that's a lot to lose, right? And then they still they were able to replace him with guys like Lionel Vital, who's now one of the top executives with the Dallas Cowboys. So he had an eye for not only on-the-field talent, but personnel talent, developing it, and then kind of saying, hey, I've helped you. Now you're going to help yourself get into these other positions. That's a hard thing to do, man. That also kind of leads us to a turn of two other teams that incredible roster building, great history, and that's the Ravens and the Steelers. And, oh. Jim, let's, let's, let's start with the Steelers. They're unbeaten. They beat the Ravens this week. Um they don't play well on offense in the first half. They got together in the second half. But, I mean, just what about the way that they were able – they know it was going to be a tough game. Defensively, they just absolutely, you know, made it hell for Lamar Jackson. When you watch that game, you wrote a column on that. I mean, what exactly are we dealing with here? Because the Steelers look so real. Yeah, the thing about them is that as you watch that game – and look, I'm not going to take anything away from Baltimore. The Steelers didn't look good in that game, much of that game offensively or defensively. I think Baltimore ended up running for 174 yards, something like that in the first half, which was, I think, more than any team had run for in a game where it was right on the Steelers' season average for a game. Um, so Baltimore was doing good things. But the thing about the Steelers was, and the thing that I found to be so powerful, is that they clearly didn't have their A game. And yet they found a way to beat a really good opponent on the road. 
And so that says a lot to me that that they could be outplayed so thoroughly. And yet when a play had to be made, they found a way to make it. Even as Lamar led Baltimore down the field on that last possession and nearly snuck in a beautiful pass to Willie Sneed in the seam. And, and we're talking a whole different story if that had been complete. To come back and win a game like that, man, that bodes well for them. And like I like I said, I thought Atlanta was going to be a playoff team. You've been on the Steelers from the jump. You were like, they are going to be it because Ben's going to make that type of difference. On the flip, okay, Baltimore loses that game, and of course the overreaction is like, ah, their offense isn't right. What's what's going on with Lamar? Hey, man, okay, the, the turnovers were there, but they still had two opportunities late in the game to win it. They did not do it, but – they're right there. My big concern for them is losing Ronnie Stanley, the great left tackle, suffered a broken ankle, damaged some tendons right there. They played part of the game without him. Um, right. But over the long haul, this is where I think they're going to have to adjust because he is that good of a player. He just signed the big contract extension last week before getting hurt. But I, I think that's where they're going to have some struggles offensively, and Lamar is going to have to be better than he's been. What's interesting to me is that beneath the surface, there appears to be some frustration bubbling in Baltimore, particularly with that offense. We saw Hollywood Brown post a tweet right. saying, you know, about not being used, and he deleted it very quickly. But, it, you know, once something goes out on social media, it's captured forever. And so um, there does appear to be some frustration with some players. Now, I still think this team is awfully talented. Um, and I think they can still make a run. But for me, the key is Lamar is going to have to play well early in these big games. When you look at the playoffs last year, started out slowly, tried to rally them late, but it was too little too late. You look at Kansas City this year, he had issues with turnovers. And then you look at this game against the Steelers, first possession, throws a pick six. Um, so he's operating out of a hole. Now he got himself going later. But that seems to be a pattern here with him right now is that in these big games, he struggles early and then he finds his footing. But it's it, it, he just can't get back to that point where they get over the hump. And to me, that's something that's going to have to be dealt with going forward. That's, that's been the knock on him since he became a starter, even since he came in to, uh, to play for Joe Flacco in that playoff game. So speaking of quarterbacks, Jim, let's look now as Tua Tungavailoa joins Justin Herbert and Joey Burrow. Um, as the other rookies who are starting. Of course, I was in Miami for that game for Tua, and, boy, you talk about bad offensive line play on, <laughs> on both sides. Ooh, though that's film they, neither team is going to want to see. Um, but, look, Tua, it was tough. Didn't have to make a lot of plays, but there were some times he needed to make them. You know, the Dolphins don't run the ball well. They've got to get their RPO game going if this three-game winning streak is going to continue. Uh, they play Arizona this week. That's going to be a potentially fun matchup with Tua and Kyler Murray. Um, but now we've got all three rooks playing, Jim. And I've been calling for Tua for a minute. Um, he's finally in. The Dolphins, they're winning. They're number two in the AFC East. Um, do you, how, how much work do you think needs to be done there for them? They're on the, right now in the playoff picture, just on the fringe of getting in the AFC. Can they continue this, especially looking at their schedule, which there are some soft pockets in there for games that they should win? Yeah, I think they can do it. Uh, they can continue it in large part because of their defense. I think sun this Sunday against Arizona is going to be more informative in terms of where is Tua? What do they have? Those sorts of things. And again, I think he's going to be fine. 
I think they drafted him there because they believe in him. But you also want to know, you want to operate from the known rather than the unknown. And this is an opportunity. I think we're going to learn a lot about him real quick. But Justin Herbert, and then this is an interesting situation as we button up the show. <sighs> He's fantastic. But, Jim, the Chargers are just a mess. What is this, the fourth game where they've led by 16 points and lost? I mean, what is that? Well, our research team came up with these numbers and said over the last two seasons, they've had 17 games that were decided by one score or less, and they have only won three of those 17 um, that's the most losses of any team during that period under those conditions. And look, we both know, as we talked about with Thomas Dimitri- Dimitrov, this is a not for long league. Yep. And when teams can't get over the hump in those close games, um, owners often look to make a change. And that's the unfortunate part here because you and I are both fans of, of Anthony Lynn, but owners don't, keep around coaches just because they're good guys. They want results. And right now, when you blow a 24 to three lead against the Denver Broncos, um, I don't have words for that. And, and you got a quarterback as good as this guy. I mean, when yeah. you've got somebody who's just that good and you continue to have this happen, as you and I know, losing close games, this is not something new to this organization. I mean, they, they have found every which way to lose a close game for it seems like 15, 20 years. And it's just troubling. You add on to the fact that, yes, their roster has been decimated by injuries, just absolutely decimated. But you've got a quarterback playing this well. Next year, you're probably going to have fans in a stadium. You are severely the number two football franchise. If I throw in USC, you are the number three football club in the L.A. area. You are the last of the professional sports teams in the L.A. area, and that's including the Angels and the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Um, and you've soccer. got to figure out a way. Yeah, and, and soccer, right, and, and MLS and Galaxy. So they have got to find a way. I would hate to see Anthony Lynn lose his job because I think he's a damn good coach. Um, but this this is just – got to remember, I covered this team from 96 to 04, if memory serves me right, and um, – I used to have a I used to have a joke and it wasn't, you know, many jokes are based in truth, but I always said I'm not getting off this beat until they have a playoff until they have a playoff team. And so I went like eight years and they never made the playoffs and then they finally made the playoffs and, and I got off the beat the year after. It's just it, it, there always seems to be something with this club that prevents it from getting over the hump. I saw Philip Rivers lose games, do things that veteran quarterbacks don't do. Um, that cost this club games. It's mind-numbing, you know? It really is. The other, the best team in that division, though, clearly the Kansas City Chiefs. And, of course, they did to the Jets what every team has done to the Jets, and that's kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit, you know, towards the sewer. Jim, Pat Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, I am sorry. Patrick. Man, don't don't get his be, mom upset at us, Steve. I know, I know. I know he's going to be joining us on the Huddle and Flow podcast. That's a tough get, Jim. So uh, coming up a little bit later this week, we're going to have the Super Bowl MVP, the face of the NFL. 
And the guy who's all of a sudden become a very provocative and outspoken speaker on social issues. The thing that's interesting to me, Steve, is as we get older, to be able to watch these young men grow and mature, to see them come into the league, you know, as as just pieces of clay and then just see them be molded um, and develop into something special. And I think this guy has it all, not just as an athlete, but someone who's willing to accept the challenge of being a face of the league um, and is doing it the right way, which um, just have a lot of respect for him. So I'm looking forward to that conversation to hear his thoughts on dealing with being the face of a league, the relationship with his head coach and his offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy, um, and just the synergy that they all have and how that works and what goes into it. Um, and just kind of his thoughts on what the ceiling is, you know, because right now I don't know what it is. This guy is so extremely talented and seems to have been dropped into the perfect situation in terms of his abilities match with the beautiful football mind of Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy. So um, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Absolutely. Well, Jim, go ahead and bring us home. You know, look, we um, say this all the time. Thank you for listening. Um, please subscribe, leave us a review, tell us what you're looking for. You know, Steve, I'm trying to think if I want to do it a different way this time or not, but I won't. I'll stick with it. We want to give you more of what you're oh, what for. you're fucking for. All right, so Jim Trotter. Leave a review. Let us know. And we read the reviews. I actually went down a bunch of them the other day. And thank you so much for the kind words and the fact that we're giving you something different. And that's what Jim and I are trying to do. So we really do appreciate that. And for Jim Trotter, I'm Steve White. And for our producer, Thomas Warren, we are the... You go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.